book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17. You can find that on page 926 in the Red Pubal, if, Pew Bible, the Pubal. I did, that's the second time I've done that. The Red Pew Bible, if you're using one of those. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21. So Acts 17, starting verse 16, reading through verse 21. Uh, within Vatican City, in the Apostolic Palace, there is a, they all have epic names. Within the Apostolic Palace, there is painted on one of the walls that, um, that once was the library of Pope Julius II, uh, a fresco, a very famous fresco by the celebrated Renaissance artist Raphael, who had been invited and commissioned by the Pope to decorate one of the rooms in his apartment. Known as the School of Athens, this fresco depicts a number of historically significant, mostly Greek, philosophers, all drawing our attention to the center, where we find Plato and Aristotle apparently locked in debate with each other. The painting is part of a larger work on the walls of the study itself. Uh, artwork on each one of the four walls was intended to provoke uh, uh, thought by representing a different aspect of knowledge, and this fresco was designed to look at philosophy. This one is probably the best well-known. Uh, Raphael chose to center Plato and Aristotle on opposing sides of each other, subtly representing their conflicting systems of thought, with Plato, who emphasized spiritual realms of the ideas, pointing to the sky, and Aristotle, who emphasized knowledge through experience, pointing his finger towards the earth. It's, it's a very subtle, very artistic way to express a lot of stuff, and it's, it's captured people's attention for a long time. Now, Raphael designed this piece to inspire the pursuit of knowledge and understanding. And it's hard to think of two figures from history that better represent that than Plato and Aristotle. Although, if you think about it, it's still sort of strange to think that two pagan Greek philosophers should be the inspiration for learning and the pursuit of knowledge in the Vatican. But it is nonetheless. As monumental as Plato and Aristotle's works were, and as much as they have influenced Western thinking, they both come up short. There have been many attempts throughout the years to baptize the thoughts of Plato and Aristotle. Granted, they say a lot of true things. Through reason, they were able to arrive at a great deal of truth, but they didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle. Not unlike the story of those four blind men who are trying to understand and visualize what an elephant is by touching different parts and all coming to different conclusions, Aristotle and Plato and these Greek philosophers were ultimately unable to fully understand the meaning of life and understand the end of truth. They took natural revelation about as far as it could get them, but however how much they loved to reason, however much they loved to pursue understanding, we see that in the end of the day they were unable to ascend the mountain to a real understanding of God. God had to come to them. And so it is that one day at the right time, God spoke into the darkness of men in Athens, revealing himself through the testimony of the Apostle Paul, and his witness about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at this, this morning. Now, God means for his glory to be known among the nations. We have seen that many times in the book of Acts. And we see it yet again, though we see it in a particularly beautiful way here in Acts 17. We know that the passion 
that we know the passion that God has for his glory to be made known among the nations is a passion that he intends for us to share with him. Jesus tells us that the foremost command that we have is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all, all that we are, with all our strength. And likewise, he tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. As Christians, there is an intersection between those two commands. We cannot say that we love God and hate our brother, who was made in God's image. Likewise, we cannot love our brother if we do not embrace the model of the love of Christ, which he's shown to us, following his example to love selflessly and obediently. To, to love God is to love him and his glory. And there is no greater display of God's glory than at the cross of Christ. The greatest act of love, then, that we can have towards another person is to direct them to see and savor the glory of King Jesus in the gospel. In this, God is glorified and our neighbor is loved because it's through this message that the victory of Christ triumphs. And it's through this message that God sets people free. If there's anything that should define us as Christians, it's this love. This intersection of loving God and loving our neighbor by sharing the good news and calling people everywhere to find relief and salvation in the grace of Christ. That is the priority that must drive us in everything we think, say, and do. We get an idea of what that actually looks like in Luke's account of Paul's time in the city of Athens, which is what we're looking at today. So if you would, please stand with me as I read our passage, starting in verse 16 and reading through verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. When we, when we look at the way the Bible describes believers, it, it uses words like sojourners and aliens, living in a world that is not their own. Jesus, while he was on trial before Pilate, told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. It is a heavenly kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. After his victory on the cross, Jesus declared that he had received all authority in heaven and on earth, he rules and he reigns over this present physical realm and over this spiritual realm that is along with it. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His glory is greater than all. His authority is without end. When we talk about the gospel, we are not talking about how people can work to save themselves. 
we are talking about what Jesus has done to accomplish that. We are talking about his completed work on the cross, his victory, a victory which is still having its effect today. As followers of Christ, we share in his priorities, and we're called then to participate in his work. And the foremost way that we are called to do that is to share the good news of what he has done with others, calling them to faith and repentance. We can see the heart of Jesus and his priorities for us as our king in his what is known as the high priestly prayer in John 17, where he prays to the Father, Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. As we read Jesus' prayer there, we see that he has a passion for his people, but he also has a passion for sending his people into the world with the good news of salvation, with the truth that sets people free. So to be a follower of Christ means to be separate from the world, but it also means to be called to go to the world. Just as Jesus entered this world, taking on flesh, becoming like us in every way yet without sin so that he could rescue his people from their sins, so he sends us. He is a king who is a conqueror and a liberator. He is a king who has overcome the world, and and as his people, we are called to follow in his victory which we overcome, overcoming by faith. As we look at Luke's account of Paul's time in Athens, it showcases for us what it looks like for believers to engage the world around them with the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel. So this, this is a really important moment in the book of Acts. I, I think it's important because not only does it show us the extent of God's love for the nations, because Athens was a place that was as far a cry from Jerusalem as you could possibly have asked. But it shows us something of the way we are called to reach the world around us, what it means to be in the world but not of the world, and to love the world for the sake of Christ without loving the things of the world. So as we look at this chapter together in Luke's account of Paul's time in Athens, we're going to look at it in two parts. Today, today we're going to look at the heart of of Paul and how he engaged the culture around him. And next week, we'll, we're going to look at the substance of how he actually reached these people in the Areopagus. So we're going to split it into two parts uh, today, really just looking at the heart of Paul in this. And next week, we'll look at what he actually preached there. We live, and one of the things I think that makes this chapter so important for us is we live in a culture that really is not so different than the culture that is described here in Athens. There are so many lessons for us to take with us as we seek to be faithful in our calling as followers of Christ. So our main idea this morning really is a central question having to do with that calling to reach the world while being distinct from it. So the main idea, the main question we want to answer this morning is, how do we engage an unbelieving world with the Spirit of Christ and with the gospel of Christ. So how do we embrace the same spirit that Christ embraced in coming to us 
as we seek to bring this good news to others. So we have, I have three distinguishing things that we're called, I think we're called to do and we should pursue. Uh, and that is, so we have three points. We see, first of all, that Paul and we are called to have a certain fire in our bones for the gospel. So we're going to look at a fire in the bones. Second, we're going to look at what it means to actually engage the age. How do we reach people where they are with the truth of the gospel? And then finally, we just want to finish by thinking about the end of knowledge and how Christ is that missing link that the world does not have, which, it, which is why it is lost in such darkness. So first, let's look at this fire in the bones. Uh, as we come to verse 16, we find Paul the apostle more or less by himself eagerly waiting on Silas and Timothy to get to him in Athens. Now, we know that you remember Paul had been escorted out of Berea. They, they doubled back a couple times to throw off his pursuers. And these people from Berea who took him uh, to Athens uh, were sent back with a message to Silas and Timothy to make hay, all haste that once, as soon as they were done, to come to him so they could continue in this work. So Paul is here on his own in Athens, uh, and, and he is waiting on them. Now, the Bereans had brought Paul to Athens. And really, Athens is a city that you should all be aware of. It's a city that needs no introduction. It, it's famous even today for its impact on Western civilization and culture and history. It was home to some of the greatest thinkers that the world has ever produced, including Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. There are others who made their home there as well, but those are probably the big three. Named in tribute to the goddess of wisdom, Athena, it was a, a popular place for people to come and share ideas with each other. And all, even though it wasn't really a politically powerful city at that time, it was still an incredibly popular tourist destination. The Romans loved Athens, and they loved to come visit there and just try to get a little bit of culture under their belt. Now, Athens also had a reputation for being deeply religious. Really, it was a place of great religious confusion. One ancient writer sarcastically commented that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than it was to find another man. It was that full of idols. Paul came to Athens from Berea really out of necessity. Luke emphasizes how he was waiting on Silas and Timothy there. And we, as, as, as Luke describes how all this comes to pass, it's almost as if Paul shares the, the gospel with the Athenians more or less, not because he was strategically targeting them, but he just couldn't stay silent anymore. There was too much going on there. His, his spirit had become so provoked by what he was seeing, he just couldn't wait any longer. Athens may have been known throughout the world as a city that loved wisdom, but in reality, it was a city that was lost in confusion and in the darkness of sin, and Paul couldn't stand by and not address this. Now, when Paul and Silas had gone out, they went out as a pair. And there was a real important reason for that. Uh, the Old Testament standard for a faithful witness had to be verified by a second witness. And so Paul and Silas are following uh, kind of the standard for the day of witness that you could trust. They were also following the pattern that Jesus set down for his disciples in Luke 9 when he sent his disciples out then. So it seems likely that Paul was kind of waiting on Silas to come to him to Athens before he started really sharing and bearing witness uh, to people about the gospel. But 
He simply, we see, we see, he simply couldn't do that. Everything he saw, everything he heard in Athens provoked him so much he couldn't wait for his second witness to get there. He had to get to work. Everywhere Paul looked, he saw people claiming to be wise, who he perceived in reality were lost in the confusion of their darkened understanding. The number of idols in Athens was evidence of this. Although the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power and divine nature were clearly perceived by these men and women, they they had not honored God as such. And so we see just as Romans 1 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. God gave the city of Athens up to the delusions of its own heart. And while the people there groped around in darkness in their own understanding for truth and significance, they found the shell of wisdom, but it was just the shell. Paul looked upon the city of Athens, I think, like a doctor looks on a hospital ward full of sick patients. He couldn't abandon them, and he couldn't wait. Silas or not, Paul couldn't sit back and allow people to go to destruction when he had the antidote for this poison of sin in his hand. And so Luke says that his spirit was provoked within him when he saw how full of idols the city was. Really, uh, that's a a correct translation. Provoked is the right translation. But there's a depth to the word that's actually used here in the text uh, that our translation puts it pretty lightly here. Uh, the, The word Luke uses here indicates that Paul had this very visceral reaction. It was affecting him physically. It was making him sick to his stomach. He couldn't wait. His heart was broken over the turmoil of the scene in front of him. His soul, the, the word here is his soul was in distress to see this confused state of the city. So, Luke tells us, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So, Paul leapt into action. He, he's like a bystander running into a burning building to pull people out because the fire department isn't there yet. He, he just couldn't wait on Silas and Timothy. He had to go. He engaged anyone and everyone he could find in the synagogue and in the marketplace, in the place where, where people were exposed to the doctrine of God, people who knew about the God of the Bible, and in the place of people who had no idea about the God of the Bible. He was willing to share the gospel, the message of truth, with anyone who would stop and give him any any time. Now, Paul's Paul's greatest love, if we read the rest of his works, we see that his greatest love was for the glory of Christ. It was a love that burned in him within his bones. It made him passionate to share this message with others. Paul had good reasons to wait on Silas and Timothy before he started that work in Athens. But the fact that his spirit was so provoked by what he saw around him, I think really gives us a vivid picture of how much, how deep Paul loved the lost. His heart was for them, as was the heart of Christ, just as he has had towards us. God had commissioned Paul to be an apostle. He had sent him out to share the good news with the lost and the dying. Paul especially had been commissioned to share the gospel with Gentiles. As the other apostles uh, had been called to reach the Jews in Jerusalem, Paul just could not, and as, as, as the apostles had told those Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem when they told them to stop, and they said, we cannot, we can't help, 
but speak about what we've seen and heard. So Paul could not help but speak about the salvation of Jesus Christ to the men and women who were around him. The Holy Spirit just would not allow him to stay silent while he saw so many suffering under the oppression of Satan. He's, he's like Jeremiah here when, when Jeremiah said, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary from holding it in, and I cannot. I think that captures a little bit of an idea of how Paul felt about the gospel and the situation around him. His passion was for the glory of Christ, and as a result, it was also for the salvation of men and women everywhere. And it just wasn't something he could turn off. The more he saw, the more passionate he became about this. Athens was a city that had some witness about the Lord within it. Luke says that there was a synagogue where Paul was actively reasoning with the Jews and the devout persons who met there, uh, telling them about the gospel. As I think about that, as I think about, I wonder what it must have been like to live as a Jew or as a God-fearer in a place like that. Whatever circumstances had led them to live there, I can't imagine that they ever really felt comfortable with the conditions of things around them. It would have been like living in John Bunyan's Vanity Fair. When you live in a culture like this, when it is every day, it is increasingly easy to to grow callous, even comfortable in it, even though you know that the things around you are wrong. There's a temptation to compromise, to make peace with it. Don't attack me and I won't attack you. But can Christians really live that way? Can we really keep our peace while the forces of darkness all around us are blinding people's eyes to the fact that they are headed to an eternal destruction? Can we remain at peace when we hold the antidote of truth in our hands? Have we quenched that fire of the Spirit who has been given to us to equip us for the task of being faithful witnesses to the glory of Christ? You see, as we live in our culture that we live in, it's very easy to grow embittered and to wonder what on earth God is going to do with this. It can be easy to just excuse things as, well, that's what the world does. But I think that's to have lost the passion that we see in Paul's life. We cannot be, we must be uneasy about the world around us. And we must then adopt a similar passion. Paul Paul had a passion for the glory of Christ. And that passion for Jesus is what made it impossible for him to stay silent about what God had done to save sinners from their sin. He loved people too much and he loved Christ too much to stay quiet. He understood the call of the Christian is a call to war against spiritual opponents, to put on the armor of God each and every day, and to stand his ground against those enemies. Paul is an example to us all, which should inspire us to consider the dire situation of the world around us. If, I wonder if, if, if any of us, would, would any of us sit idly by if someone were to throw themselves into a fire? No. When you do anything in your power to keep someone from jumping to their death, if there were some enemy attacking your neighbor, would you just stand there and watch? 
No, you would not do that. You would go. You would engage that enemy. You would destroy them. You would do everything in your power to save their lives, even if it cost you yours. So what about men's souls? Consider this, friends. Satan, your enemy, hates you. He is very cunning. He is very powerful. He is not your friend. He is a liar and a murderer who is bent on destroying you. He is a defeated enemy, but he is interested only in waging a war of attrition against the kingdom of Christ. He, know he, cannot, he knows he cannot win. That's not going to stop him from trying to make a mess. If Satan can get you to disengage, if he can get you to make peace with him, he will gain an advantage to what he aims to do. So do not be fooled. Embrace the passion of Christ. Put on the armor of God and run to the gunfire. Resist the urge to slacken your pace because heaven and hell are real and the return of Christ is imminent and the glory of Christ is too great to be silent and men and women's souls are too precious to allow people to go to their doom without us doing everything in our power to share the good news with them. Let the gospel be a fire in your bones. Now, the question then becomes, how do we do that? That's what I want to look at in our second point, engaging the age. Now, growing up, I, I played a lot of different sports, basketball, baseball, football, tennis. I was really involved in band. I loved, I loved competition. And whatever sport I played, it seemed like every coach had, kind of had a similar uh, speech to get everybody motivated. Uh, all of my coaches always talked about how winning came down to more than talent. It came down to how bad you wanted it. And man, you would hear, I would listen to these speeches, and, and I always got fired up about it. I was like, yeah, I want to win. I, I will do whatever I can to make us win. I, I wanted to win. I wanted to be the best. I would hit the field ready to go. And that passion, just it lasted right up until the first time you get hit in the face, and you realize, man, that's a lot harder than I thought. I tried to be the player on the field that had the most passion because, after all, that's what the coach told me was critical to success. But I don't think it was until much, it was a much, much later that I came to understand that it's not about the passion. It's about what the passion makes you do. You see, you find out who actually wants it more when you see the player putting extra time and extra diligence on and off the field in practice and in training. That's the player that actually wants it. They engage their goals, they're engaged to their goals on and off the field. I think we can think similarly about our passion for the lost. We can say that we passionately want people to come to Christ. We can be very passionate to encourage each other on a Sunday morning to do that. But the question is, do we actually engage people with the truth? Do we actually develop hearts of tenderness towards others? Do we remind ourselves before we leave the house each day that Satan plays for keeps and that our Savior, Jesus, has not called us out of the world but to the world to reach others with the same truth of the gospel that we have believed? Paul didn't just feel passionately about the glory of Christ and the desperate condition of the city of Athens. He was resolved to do something about it. He was resolved to be obedient. He was answering that call of Christ to share the good news with the nations, to make disciples, and to teach them everything that Christ had commanded his people to do. Look at the, look at the transition between verse 16 and verse 17. 
So we see his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. That's passion. So, it says, so, therefore, because of that, he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's passion produced action. His love went to work. His passion for Christ became a Christ-centered work. And look what he did. He, he engaged people where they were in an effort to reach them with the truth. In verse 18, Luke specifies that Paul specifically spoke to some of those of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, what you need to know about that, I want to be careful here because philosophy, you say the word philosophy and instantly some of you go, oh, I'm done. What you need to know about these two groups of people is that they were, uh, at this point, they kind of represented two different responses to the failed attempts of Plato and Aristotle in establishing the ultimate meaning of life. The Epicureans followed a man, uh, the teachings of a man named Epicurus who held that pleasure was the chief goal of life. Now, unlike some of the gross hedonists who had come, had come before him and his followers, they held that true pleasure was in a balanced life that was free from pain, disturbing passions, superstitions, fears, and so on. They lived in the here and now And they just gave up any hope that there was any ultimate future. The rivals of the Epicureans were the Stoics, who followed the teachings of Zeno. They emphasized harmony with nature and man's rational ability. They were typically pantheistic, which means they kind of looked at the whole world as just, there were just gods everywhere, everything is God. And then they emphasized their own self-sufficiency in that. So the Stoics and the Epicureans would debate with each other every day, uh, and they, they, would, they, would, they had all sorts of points of division. But they both agreed, more or less, that there was no ultimate reality to be pursued. Plato and Aristotle, they hadn't been able to agree on the issue, and so they decided, well, let's just not bother with it at all. Let's just figure out how to live a good life here and now, and tomorrow we die. When Paul comes to Athens, he comes reasoning and preaching ultimate truth. And that's what I want you to catch about this. These two groups had finally decided, you know what? We're just living for the here and now. When Paul enters the scene, he is coming proclaiming something that Plato and Aristotle had missed out on, these two titans of Athens. He's coming to say something to them that I have something that you have not been able to get to. I've come proclaiming something to you. You need to have Paul comes preaching that there was one God who made all of creation, who purposed it for his own glory, who was knowable and who was meant to be known. He came declaring that there was ultimate purpose and meaning in a right right relationship with this God. He came preaching the good news that human sin has a solution, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, when, when Paul comes on, this seems like absolute madness to these two groups. They don't know what to do with this new teaching. Some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? Actually, they call him a a spermologus, which is a a term, it's a derogatory term for someone who would pick up bits and pieces of different teachings and different places and then try to sell them off as original ideas. So this is, they're trying to discredit Paul and they're saying, no, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Others reacted a little more generously saying, he, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. You notice that the divinities there is plural. They haven't actually caught on that 
Paul is preaching one God. Living in a town where debate was the way of life, Luke says that Paul, they took Paul to a place called the Areopagus, which is a, a designated court at the top of the city where debates and trials would be held before a council who ruled in matters of religion and education. Paul had brought them some strange things that they had never heard, and they wanted to know what these things meant. To those who had never heard about God or Christ, the gospel sounds very strange. The Athenians were so lost in their own system of unbelief, they had a hard time grasping what Paul had to share with them. But God was work, working through the confusion to give Paul a golden opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus with them. As we look at this, we have to marvel at something. What an opportunity to stand in the court of Ares on Mars Hill, as the Romans called it, and declare the saving gospel of Jesus to these men who are lost in their own misunderstanding. Now, we'll, as I said, we'll get to what Paul uh, actually said to these men next week. But I want you to notice something about how Paul engaged the people in this city. Luke says that Paul reasoned and debated with people in the city. That meant he was engaging them, not just preaching at them, but he was reasoning with them. He was listening to what they had to say and offering counterpoints. He was getting an idea, a grasp on their worldview. He was understanding why they said the things that they said, and he was showing them why where they landed was not good enough. That, that took time. It took commitment. It took a willingness to learn what people believed and why they believed it. But in the end, it was worth it because it enabled Paul to highlight the inconsistency of what these people believed to show them a better way, to introduce them to the God who made them and loved them. There's an important lesson, I think, for us to take from Paul's method in the marketplace. Paul was not peddling his own ideas. He was not trying to gain notoriety for himself as his opponents accused him of. He was there to engage the lies of Satan, to tear down the strongholds of old lies, and to expose people to the beauty of Jesus. If we hope to engage people with the gospel, we need to be willing to listen to them. We need to be willing to invest in them, to challenge them, to listen to their objections, and to provide them with answers from God's word. Paul in Athens became more than just a preacher. He was an apologist. He was a defender of the faith, giving a defense for the faith, even as he was engaging the lives of the devil, which had dominated this city for far too long. Now, I have never met anyone who was argued into the kingdom of God. I've never met someone who just heard enough counterpoints and heard enough philosophy, and they finally just said, all right, fine, I'll believe it. Believing the gospel takes more than just logical reasoning, though it is logical. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit, convicting people of their sin, showing, pointing them to the glory of Christ, confirming in their own hearts that this is in fact true. But I think part of wielding the sword of the Spirit, as we've been called to do, is being willing to engage people where they're at taking time to listen to their point of view, not just assuming you already know where they are and you're already preparing your next point, but listening to them and understanding why they believe what they believe and then engaging that with the truth of the gospel. When we take time to listen to people, we show them love and respect and we're better equipped to reason with them and point them to the Christ who saves. 
some of the some of the best conversations that I've had with non-Christians started by just simply asking them if I could get to know them and then asking them what they believed. It's actually very simple to get to talk to somebody about the gospel. As soon as you start talking to them and asking them what they believe about the world, asking them what they believe about God, in turn, it's very easy to say, well, can I share with you what I believe and why I believe that? And that just has opened many doors. I have found that as I've had conversations like that, as I listen to them, God opened up opportunities for me to share my faith with them and the message of the gospel with them, and we were able to discuss those things together. Not, not all of them came to a point where they believed the gospel, but there was a seed planted there, and it was planted there in love, and I think they understood that because I, had t- I took time to listen to what they had to say. That is the pattern that I think we see in the way that Paul engaged these men in Athens. And it's something that I think we should all strive to incorporate into the way that we seek to reach those that God brings into our lives. There are so many opportunities God brings into our lives to share the gospel. Even in the way you talk to your cashier when you're getting your groceries. You talk to them graciously. You treat them with respect and with love. And they see that there's something deeper in you than what they experience on a regular basis. It leaves an impression. And through time and time again, consistency, showing the love of Christ by showing love to them, we are preaching the gospel through our actions. And I think taking time to talk with your neighbors and get to know them in that way is a key way of getting to share this good news with them. So I want to encourage you to do that. Because all too often when people think about evangelizing and sharing your faith, they get wrapped up around, well, I got to hit this point, and I got to hit this point, and I got to make it through the Romans road, do, 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 do. and it's like a marketing, and no one's comfortable with that. The fact of the matter is that we're sharing the truth with people, and they are people, and they need Christ, and we're called to love them. And part of loving them is sharing the truth of Christ and engaging people where they're at, not in any way diminishing the truth of the gospel, but always engaging them with the truth of the gospel where they are here and now. And that brings us to our last point, the end of knowledge. Luke ends this section with a little statement about the Athenians themselves. He says, Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now it's good to be a deep thinker, but this is not a compliment from Luke. The Athenians had a reputation for talking a lot, for being fascinated with novel ideas, of talking about what they should do but not actually acting. They never landed on truth. They were happy to talk. They were happy to study. They were happy to listen, to debate. They were never landed on solid ground. They were tossed by the sea of human reasoning and understanding. understanding. They had no anchor. And so you can see where that got them. Nowhere. As a student, I have always felt the weight of Solomon's advice. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed to judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The book of Proverbs says that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, says that the fear of the Lord is the end of knowledge. 
The Athenians never tired of study and debate, but they lacked the fear of the Lord. He was foreign to them, so foreign that when Paul came preaching the good news of salvation, they seemed to have misunderstood to think that Jesus was some, some sort of God who was served by another goddess, Anastasis, or resurrection. That's why they say, this guy seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. They needed clarity. They, they needed God to remove their blindness before they could put their feet firmly on the truth of the gospel. Human reason and understanding has its merits, but it comes short, and the Athenians show us that. There are simply some things that we cannot find out through reason or through our senses. There are certain mysteries that the human mind cannot contain or understand. There is truth that cannot be known apart from God making it known to us. When Paul came to Athens, he came telling people about Jesus Christ, who is that divine revelation that we need. Jesus is able to provide us with that ultimate truth. He is able to answer those questions that Plato and Aristotle asked but could never answer. As a son of God, the incarnate word, Jesus makes God known to us. He shows us the holiness and the power of God, the purpose for the world, the reason for beauty and aesthetics, the reason for law and the rule of nature. He confirms God's word to us, and he gives us a basis for faith and hope. Jesus does not make us, uh, does not make us set up logic. He doesn't make us set logic and reason aside. Rather, he elevates our understanding, and he gives our lives a firm place to stand. As we share this good news with people, we, we aren't just engaging in a philosophy or a worldview. We're engaging them with a truth that's going to be life-changing. We're engaging them with Jesus. He is the end of all knowledge. Not that he makes knowledge go away, but he is the purpose for which knowledge exists. He is the purpose for the pursuit of wisdom and understanding. God has called us to love him, and he has called us to love our neighbor. For the follower of Christ, this is the way. He has called us to make his glory known by sharing the gospel. He's called us to reach our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, and to be faithful to our families. He has called us to go and to tell others, to engage the darkness, to take on his heart as our own, to love each other, to love others enough to listen to them, and to love them enough to point them to the truth, whatever the cost. Paul's passion for truth is something we should all wish to have. But you don't have to be the next Paul to be faithful to this calling. You just have to love Christ and love others the way he has loved you. You have to be faithful to engage people graciously with the gospel, and you have to point them to Christ. That, ultimately, is our calling. May God give us grace to do that in this coming week. Lord, we just want to come before you and thank you for the example of Paul. Lord, he, he labored very diligently because he loved Jesus and he loved people. And the love of Christ was shown in his life by the way he was willing to even give himself for that end. Lord, we want to come before you this morning and ask that you would give us a heart for our neighbors, for our friends, for our coworkers, for those who, who are part of our community, for those outside, for the people who are in, in the world, anyone you bring across our path. Well, Father, we pray that you would give us a heart that reflects the heart of Christ. Lord, we know his passion. We know he was willing to go to the cross in love for us. And we pray that we would each day take up our own cross and follow him. 
that we would give of ourselves as he has given of himself, and that through that testimony and through that witness, you would bring many more to know the truth, that you would free them from sin and cleanse them from all righteousness, cleanse them for all righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.